turn in your Bibles or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 17. Uh, Luke 17, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 10 in Luke 17. If you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy and all-sufficient word. Follow along silently as I read aloud Luke 17, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, You must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, today we start a new chapter in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and as we spend these days focusing on the final months of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see Jesus continue to narrow his focus really to two groups of people almost exclusively. Uh, These groups were his disciples, not just the twelve, but all who would follow him, the disciples of Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And he constantly is presenting them in contrast to one another. They're juxtaposed against one another. Everything the Pharisees were, Jesus told his disciples not to be. Everything the Pharisees were not, he wanted his disciples to become. The tone of the passage is actually set Uh, that we read today is set in verse 3, Luke 17, verse 3, with the words, pay attention to yourselves. Uh, That's not him saying, hey, uh, pay attention because the disciples were distracted or or daydreaming. It's a strong, firm warning of imminent danger. It's a a Greek term, prasecho, and any time we see it, it's not just a casual like, hey, pay attention, all eyes on me. It's more like in, in English when we say, look out which we kind of reserve for real moments of imminent danger, right? You don't just stand in line for coffee in the lobby and somebody happens to spill a little milk. You're like, look out! People would be like, calm down, bro. We can just wipe that up. You don't need more caffeine. Like We we say those things when there's danger, when someone might be wandering into traffic, when a kid's walking near the edge of a pool. I mean, that's a term that we say with that volume and with that energy level when there's imminent danger. Same thing for this term right here. Um, It's that pay attention, that look out that we see in verse 3 that we would do well to have in mind as we look at our text today. But take a look at verse 1. 
It says, and he, meaning Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Which brings us to our first point. Point number one, sin and temptation are inevitable, but that doesn't mean you should take them lightly. Uh, sin, Sin and temptation in this life, offenses in this life, temptations to sin are inevitable, But just because it's normative doesn't mean it shouldn't be taken seriously. Just because it's common doesn't mean we should just think it's cool and we just roll with it. I have uh, four kids, uh, four of them, and uh, we have lived in two states. We have lived in five homes. Um, All four of my kids, all four, all four of them have fallen down the stairs at some point in their life. All four of my kids have fallen down this. I appreciate the consistency, but it's like, what in the world is going on? Justin fell down the stairs in an apartment in New York City. Uh, Jonathan and Emma both fell down the stairs, not like together, wee, but, but both fell down the stairs in our last home, and then Silas fell down the stairs in this home. It's like it's a hobby. All right, they've fallen down the stairs. And finally, I remember at some point when this happened, I, I looking at Sarah like, all right, what is the only thing... The only thing in common here, it's not the kids, it's not the location. Quite frankly, the only thing in common, the common denominator is like us as negligent parents. Like how, how is this happening over and over and over again? And she's like, Peter, it just happens. Like kids fall down the stairs. I was like, it's never happened. No, this doesn't just happen. She's like, yes, it does. It does happen. I was like, it never happened to me growing up. She was like, you had an elevator. I was like, fair point, but still. We did, I did walk downstairs in my life. I didn't just elevate to every place that I ever went to. I just never fell down the stairs. She was like, it's not, this is not uncommon. Kids fall down the stairs. I'm like, well, it seems like we should be doing something different. Better gates. Should I get helmets? I don't know what I should do, but they constantly falling down. It seems constant. She said, my I had trouble letting it go. She said, my siblings, we, we fell down the stairs. I was like, so it's genetic. They get it from your side of the... Like, that's what you're telling me. She was like, you got to stop this. Got to let it go. If you look at the text, Jesus isn't primarily talking about the fall, right? He's not talking about the stumble. He, what he is talking about is the means by which the stumble would happen. In other words, it's one thing if my kids fall down the stairs, which they have done, all four of them. That is concerning. doesn't matter what Sarah says. It's concerning. It's a completely different thing if it's Sarah or myself who are, like, pushing them down the stairs, causing them to fall, right? You're like, how did it happen? We're like, every once in a while, we throw them down the stairs. It keeps them honest. Like, that would be concerning if that was how we rolled as parents. It's one thing to hear that your kid fell down the stairs. It's another thing to hear that somebody caused it. And so that's what's being spoken about here. Uh, Verse 1, temptations to sin are sure to come. People are going to stumble, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now, sin is serious. We're to take sin seriously in our own lives, but that's not what Jesus is primarily speaking of here. He doesn't even name a sin. He's just talking about sin generally. He's speaking uh, specifically about the means by which one would sin or be tempted to sin. Sin is sure to come. It's inevitable. Temptation is sure to come. It's going to happen. But if you're the means by which sin is coming to someone else, Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to the man by whom that sin comes. If you look at Luke chapter 22 and verse 22 in your outline, uh, this is Jesus 
actually at the Lord's Supper, talking about the fact that someone at that table is going to betray him. He says in verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, meaning the fact that Jesus is going to die, that has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so, yes, is it the will of God that Jesus would die? Of course, he was born to die. It's the will of God that Jesus would die on behalf of sinners like you and like me. But the person who brings it about, the person who betrays him, the person who stabs him in the back for measly, you know, pocket change for 30 pieces of silver, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Paul talks about it in his letter to the Romans and to uh, the church at Corinth, Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide what? Never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. It's one thing to say kids fall down the stairs, but it's another thing if you're causing them to do so. That's completely different. It's one thing to say, we're all sinners, which is true. Or sin is common, it's everywhere. Also true. But woe to the one through whom they come. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, it would be better for him if a millstone, so the person who causes sin, verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones uh, to sin. Uh, when I read this, I actually think of my mother-in-law. Um, my mother-in-law, because it was August of 2001. I had just met Sarah a few months prior to that, and I had the opportunity to go down to South Carolina, which is where my in-laws live, and I was introduced to her family and her siblings, and then Sarah had to leave early. I was down there with other, a bunch of students. It's a long story. She had to leave early for work. I was quite the catch. I was gamefully unemployed at the time. And uh, I was down there with some students. And so I was staying at her house and getting to know her family and staying up late at night talking to what would be my future in-laws. And at one point, I expressed to them my intentions, my desire to... to to be with Sarah, that to date her. For us, we actually had already been dating. But I expressed to them, this is what I would want to am doing with, uh, with Sarah and just how much I uh, appreciated their family and her and all the things. And just I wanted to protect her. I was very extra. But, but, but I meant all the things. And um, they were sitting there and they were listening and they were smiling. And then with a smile on her face, my mother-in-law looked at me and said, good, because if not, it will be better if a millstone were hung around your neck. <laughs> Copy that, right? Like, wow, that, this is my first experience with Southern hospitality. Like, this is, I've just been threatened. I've been threatened. Threatened that Peter Roof is going to swim with the fishes if I do that. I don't get this in New York. I get it in South Carolina. Got it. Uh, it's funny now, I think she meant it. I think it's such a serious matter to cause someone else to sin, to be an agent of temptation, that as funny as it was, she's quoting scripture. That's how serious we are to take our responsibility 
for our brothers and our sisters in Christ. So much so that Jesus says it would be better, preferable even, to suffer one of the most horrible deaths imaginable than to suffer the consequences of being the one by whom someone would sin. That would be far more tolerable, far more desirable than the punishment that awaits someone who would cause a person to sin. Verse 3, there we have that, pay attention to yourselves. There's that warning that by this time, those listening to Jesus certainly would have been paying attention. He's been clear, he's been firm, and now he goes in a completely different direction. Because instead of focusing on don't be the person through whom sin comes, he shifts, and now he talks about uh, how people are to respond when they are sinned against. Not if they're sinned against, but when. People are going to be sinned against. Verse 1 says, temptations to sin are sure to come, which brings us to to point number 2. Sin and temptation are inevitable, which makes forgiveness all the more necessary. You're going to need it. You're going to need to get it. You're going to need to grant it. Following Jesus in this life is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the one who wants an easier time relating with people or for those who would prefer to avoid troubles in this world. People who come to Christ with that expectation, it usually isn't long before they are let down. Uh, Jesus speaks to us very clearly throughout the Gospels that we need to count the cost of taking up our cross and following him. The Christian life is not for the faint of heart. We're promised a better day, right? We're promised eternity with God. We're promised heaven, but life on earth oftentimes gets much more difficult. And sin is inevitable. And since it's inevitable, Jesus says, don't be the one through whom it comes, and now talks about how to respond when it comes against you. Specifically, he says in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Avoid sinning against others, but don't begrudge those who sin against you. Now, we're going to talk a lot about forgiveness for the rest of the sermon, but we need to pay attention to all that Jesus instructs us to do in this passage. And before he talks about forgiveness in verse 3, he says we're to do something else. Verse 3 says, if your brother sins, what? Rebuke him. Rebuke him. The first step is to show someone their sin and to do so Uh, Clearly, in a way that they can see what they are doing or what they've done. See, I think sometimes people think that uh, the mandate on our lives that Jesus has called us to forgive means like we we just take it on the chin and we just go through life acting like things don't happen. We just let it all roll off our backs. That's actually not what we see in the Scriptures. What we see in the Scriptures is, yes, a calling to forgive, but also to engage in dialogue with the person who is sinning or the person who has sinned against you. And that's what Jesus first says is, uh, if someone has sinned, if your brother sins, rebuke him. You see, Jesus wants us involved in each other's lives because he works in us through us. Uh, He works in our lives through each other. He has things for us to know. We have blind spots that we would not see that he knows about. And sometimes your brothers and sisters know about, and you know about theirs. And he wants us actively involved in each other's lives so that we can, instead of talking about people, talk to people and help them and help them. It's not so easy to talk to people all the time. It's easy to talk about them, right? It's easy to talk about them, but it's not so easy to talk 
to people. But that's what God has called us to do for his glory and our good. But it's not easy. But here's what I found to be true in my life, and I'm, if I would venture to say it's probably true in yours also. Oftentimes, the conversation you're avoiding is exactly the one you need to have. Oftentimes, the conversation you're avoiding is exactly the one you need to have. Avoiding conversations about these things, about someone who has sinned against you or someone who you just see living a life that is unbecoming of a Christian, avoiding those conversations is unhelpful on just about every level. I mean, if you know someone has sinned or they have sinned against you and you don't talk to them about it, you think about it, and you might even pray about it. It's been my experience you probably do more thinking about it than praying about it. And the fact that God has made you aware of sin in someone else's life, either because they've sinned against you or you've just been privy to a, a, a thing that they're doing or an unrighteous way in which they're living, the fact that God has made you aware of that, you have to question, why has God made me aware of this? Uh, surely there's a reason. God, God's not just like, just because, right? Hey, I just figured you'd know. Just letting you know you don't got to do anything with it. Why has God given you an awareness of this sin in this person's life, either because they've sinned against you or just because you're aware of it? Why has he done that? It's not just for you to know, and it's not, I would say it's not just for you to pray. It's likely that God will work through you to make someone else aware of their sins so they can repent. And so you can either be reconciled with them or so they can be more reconciled with God when God uses your voice speaking into their life to say, hey, you ought not do that. Hey, this is not glorifying to God. God has a better way, and you shouldn't be doing it this way. Another reason it's unhelpful to not speak to someone about what you know or the fact that they've sinned against you is the knowledge of someone's sin rarely stays contained. There's a, a weight to knowing this. There's a weight that you bear to knowing this about your brother or your sister. And that weight is supposed to, by God's design, drive you to do something with it, that you would have a, a need for closure in the matter, right? That you would go and talk to that person and not just call them on the carpet, like you're not pointing fingers, but say, hey, I'm really concerned that this thing you're doing or thing you've done is conduct unbecoming of a Christian. There's a weight to knowing that that is way more released. You feel a burden released when you speak about it to the person who it needs to be spoken to. If you don't, I think the temptation to gossip will creep in. I think you will so desire to have that weight borne by other people as well that you will speak to other people who are not part of the solution. You might sugarcoat it and say, I'm just... I'm just I just want them to know so they can what? So they can pray, right. But in reality, as you pray, add some feet to your prayers and act in a way that shows that you really want this person to repent. Go to the person and talk to them. Otherwise, the enemy and your own sinful nature will twist this opportunity that's intended for good. The fact that God has made you aware of sin in a brother or a sister's life, he will twist it and you'll talk to someone else about it, you'll feel a little better because you're not bearing that burden alone. Someone else knows, but the person that needs to know still does not. And so nothing's been improved. And so you feel better, but the situation hasn't improved at all. In fact, it's now likely getting worse 
since an opportunity to catch sin early has turned itself into gossip and more people know than need to know. Verse 3, Luke 17 says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. It's what we're called to do in each other's lives. One sinner talking to another sinner. We're not, we don't do it on a high horse. We don't do it in a judgmental way. We're not the sin police. Nor are we the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit oftentimes uses us in such a way that he works through us as we talk to people and help them along their way, just like hopefully you would want them to do for you. What about you? Do you live your life in such a way that those who are closest to you, friends, family members, spouse, kids, feel that they can come up to you and say, hey, we got to talk. I think you're a little off. I think what you did was sinful. I don't think you want to do that. I think you want to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. Do you have a welcome mat in front of your life for people who know and love you well, who see the blind spots that you can't see to be able to help you, let you know if there's something on your back, if there's something in your teeth, if there's sin in your life that you would not know of had that person not spoken to you about it? And are you willing to do that for other people? Luke 17, 3 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Verse 4, If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, where do we get this idea of seven? What's he talking Well, the rabbis in Jesus' day would wrongfully teach that God forgave a maximum of three times. They would misinterpret scriptures from the Old Testament and say, God forgives three times, three strikes, and then you're out. And so what Jesus is doing, like I said, remember, all the time, they tell, if the Pharisees are doing something, he says, you want to do the opposite. If the Pharisees do that, don't do that. If they don't do that, you need to do that. And so he is teaching against their teaching. He's correcting uh, the thinking of the disciples and said, and going out of his way to teach against what the Pharisees would teach and basically doubled their teaching plus and added to it. And so the Pharisees would teach that God forgives three times, and he did three times two plus one. Not six, seven times. And so if, uh, if, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And that would have gotten their attention like, whoa, dang. It's like somebody saying, you know, seven strikes and you're out. Like, that's not normally how it works. It's, I thought it was supposed to be three. Forgive, forgive, forgive. And so this passage has to be interpreted in the way in which it was intended. Here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus isn't saying we need to forgive each other seven times a day, and on the eighth time, we begrudge them. That's, that's not what Jesus is doing here. Not at all. Furthermore, Jesus isn't saying if someone doesn't repent, you can begrudge them. That's not what he's saying either. Because uh, elsewhere in Scripture, we know that a root of bitterness creeping up inside of our hearts and minds is not something that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to guard against it. Now, let's say somebody doesn't repent, but they've sinned against you, but they don't repent. 
You may not announce to that person that you forgive them, as that wouldn't make much sense since the person doesn't think they've done anything wrong. Hey, I wanted to let you know I forgive you. And the person's like, "Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what for. But for you in your heart, for you in your mind to have forgiven them, to choose to not remember their sin against them, to choose to not hold their sin against them is what God has called us to do. Now, your relationship with that person may change. You may not interact with them the same as you did before. You may not even trust them in the way you have before because of their refusal to own their sin and repent. There might be changes that need to be made in how you relate to this brother or sister, and those will vary from person to person, from situation to situation. There might even be inescapable consequences to that person's sin that will befall that person that you won't save them from. But if you're a Christian, God has called you to forgive. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about unforgiveness because unforgiveness typically impacts the life of the person who is refusing to forgive more than the life of the person they are refusing to forgive. Does that, does that make sense? Unforgiveness, if I'm refusing to forgive my sister or my brother of something, the person who's usually impacted by that the most is me. And so in your outline, I'm sure there's more, but I've listed nine results of failing to forgive that I want to go through with you right now. And I want to ask you to uh, keep your place in Luke 17, but flip over to the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 18, because the first couple of points are actually straight from Matthew chapter 18 and a parable that Jesus tells, which I'd like to read for us now. Matthew 18, uh, beginning in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment had to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, And forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Nine results of failing to forgive. Number one, it's really the whole point of that parable is this. You won't relate to others in a reasonable way. What is being done in that parable, I think, even at just first glance, is unreasonable. That this person would be 
uh, excused from his debt, would have mercy poured out on him, and then turn around and be completely angering the complete opposite with someone who is now in his debt. You won't relate to others in a reasonable way. Harboring bitterness and holding on to someone's sin and offense against you usually causes you to think and act in a way that is unreasonable, that is illogical, and certainly not consistent and not in line with the Scriptures. Uh, Number two, uh, you won't enjoy the love of other Christians. Look at verse 31 in that parable. Matthew 18, verse 31 says, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And so they are distressed with what he has chosen to do. He's been cut off from them. They're telling his master, like, you got to do something about this. This This is not good. And so he's not enjoying the fellowship, the friendship, the love of his fellow servants. And similarly, you'll find that happens in this life as well. If you have a reputation of being unforgiving, if you are harboring bitterness against someone, usually what comes to your mind is, I don't want to be on her bad side. I don't want to be on his bad side. And so people keep a safe distance because they don't feel safe. Uh, they don't feel that they can mess up and be forgiven. They know, whoa, I'm imperfect, and you know what? To be on his bad side, to be on her bad side would be no bueno. And so usually people, the more unforgiving they are, you'll notice they don't have a lot of good, honest, trustworthy, heartfelt relationships um, with other Christians. They're usually to some degree cut off. Uh, Nine results of failing to forgive. Number three, you'll receive chastening from God himself. Uh, Look at verse 34 of that parable. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then verse 35 says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's Jesus telling us that we are going to receive some sort of chastening, some sort of discipline from God. We will invite that into our lives if we are not forgiving others as we have been forgiven. And Jesus promises that so my heavenly Father will do this to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Uh, Number four, you'll forget that whoever offended you offended God more. And that's important to remember And as we consider that, you'll see in parentheses is Psalm 51 and verse 4. Let's take a brief minute and talk about King David. King David's sexual sin against Bathsheba affected many people. At the top of the list chiefly is Bathsheba. But it also affected her husband Uriah, whom David had killed. The child that resulted from David's sin with Bathsheba died as a baby. David's own children were certainly affected by the example he set of sexual sin and murder. The entire nation of Israel suffered from a civil war that resulted from Absalom's rebellion against David. However, as David confessed his culpability, as David confessed his sin, as we read in Psalm 51, he cried out to God against you You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. At the top of his mind was, I've sinned against all these people, but you know who I've sinned against more than any one of them? 
I have offended a holy and righteous God. And so that's when he says against, it's as if you and you only, surely he knows he sinned against other people, but as far as his heart and his mind is concerned, of utmost importance wasn't his reputation, wasn't his position, it wasn't any of that. It was, I have sinned against God. You might say, what does this have to do with unforgiveness? Well, namely this, watch. If you are an unforgiving person, if you are an unforgiving person, you will pay no regard to the fact that that person who sinned against you sinned against God first and foremost. Your refusal to forgive them indicates you are infinitely more concerned about their sin against you than you are their walk with the Lord. Infinitely more concerned with how it has impacted you than you are concerned about their relationship with God. It shows your refusal to forgive will show a disregard for the fact that this is primarily a sin against God and secondarily a sin against you. You'll see yourself as the primary one, maybe even the exclusive one who has been offended with no regard for the fact that your brother's sin, your sister's sin is primarily against God and secondarily against you. That's a result of unforgiveness. You will forget the bigger picture. And you will shrink down the scope of your world to just what happened to you by this person and that will be all that matters. Nine results of failing to forgive. Number five, you'll fail to be forgiven by God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Uh, That is not Jesus saying God is up in heaven sitting on his hands just waiting to see what you do. And if you do one thing, he'll do another. And it's like, God, what's your plan for her life? What's your plan for his life? And he's like, I don't know. It depends on what she does. Said no one ever. What that is saying is the title of our sermon. Forgiven people, forgive people. One of the greatest litmus tests of your salvation is are you a forgiving person as God has forgiven you? And so Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, if you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive yours. It's a sign that you have been saved, that you've been born from above, that you really do believe that God has forgiven you through, his, uh, through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. If you don't forgive other people, it's indicative of the fact that you don't really, you have not really experienced forgiveness yourself. Because if you had, you would not help but be able to extend forgiveness to others. And you'll fail to be forgiven by God. Number six is also from the Sermon on the Mount. You'll be unfit for worship. You'll be unfit for worship. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know, the Bible says a lot about the love of God, the compassion of God, the mercy, the forgiveness of God, God's patience, his his long-suffering with us. But you know what else the Bible says a lot about, talks a lot about? Uh, The anger of God, the wrath of God. 
In the Old Testament, there are several places, we can't go to them today, but several places where God looks down and says, hey, I hate your worship. Not like, I feel like it was a little off. Maybe I'm getting feedback. No, I hate your worship. I hate your feasts. I hate your solemn assemblies. I hate your raised hands. I hate your singing. I hate it. And the reason he hates it is because despite what people are doing, inside their heart doesn't match what they're doing outwardly. Inside their heart is, is, is something that is not congruent, that doesn't jive with somebody who really loves the Lord, who really wants to worship with him. And so God looks down and he doesn't say, I would appreciate it, encourage you if maybe you can adjust that. He says, that what you're doing, I hate. And so in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus tells us, if you have something against your brother, you can't hold that bitterness in your heart against your brother or sister and make like it doesn't exist and just raise your hands and thank the Lord for his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness while you refuse to forgive somebody else. Because I don't see through that, and you may not see through that, but God sees right through that. Because we look at the outside, but God looks at what? The heart. And so if you refuse to forgive, you will be unfit for worship. God says, first be reconciled to your brother. First be reconciled to your sister. Then come and offer your gift. Uh, Number seven, you'll be tempted to usurp God's authority. You'll be tempted to usurp God's authority. Romans 12 and verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's really hard. Uh, That's really hard to say, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave vengeance in the Lord's hands because you may not see it. We see so many times throughout the scriptures, right? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do they seem to get away? Why do they seem to have a better life, an easier life? Like, seems like you have more favor on them than you do me. But you know what? When you've forgiven somebody, I'm not saying it's then easy. I am saying it's easier. When you forgive somebody and you extend forgiveness to them and you say, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, this matter is closed. It's closed. I've forgiven them. I'm not going to remember their sin against them. I'm going to leave it in the Lord's hands. Even and especially if that person is not sorry for their sin. Especially if that person is not sorry for their sin. And you say, you know what, Lord? You're in control. I've done what I can do. I've spoken to them. They don't see it. I'm going to forgive them anyway, and I'm going to leave it in your hands. Vengeance is yours. You will repay. I will not. If you haven't forgiven them, the temptation for you to then repay, the temptation for you to then even the scales, the temptation for you to slander them or gossip about them or to bring some sort of evil upon them, that temptation is very real. And if you do that, you're being tempted to usurp God's authority, because God says, I'm on that. And you're like, I think I'll be on that. And that's not good. You'll be tempted to usurp God's authority if you are unforgiving. Two more. Number eight, you'll miss out on being perfected by trials. You'll miss out on being perfected by trials. James 1 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your face produces steadfastness. If you can't forgive your brother or sister, 
It's going to be really hard for you to trust in the Lord that, you know what, I guess God's going to bring something good about this because you're keep focusing on, I can't believe this happened to me. I can't believe she would dare do that to me. I can't believe that. What nerve he has that he would sin against me in that way. And again, your world just shrinks down to the horizontal transactional relationship that you have between that person and you. And you're like, well, maybe God's, maybe God's going to do something good with this. You're like, good. Good. How could good? They sinned against me. That just can't be good. You'll miss out on the bigger picture that God could do something good in your life through the trials and the tribulations that befall you. Temptation will come. Trials will come. Sin will surely come. James 1 gives us a great encouragement that we should count it joy, not, not because we love suffering, but you know what? I know God is up to something. You will be distracted from that if all you can focus on is how that other person has wronged you. You will lose the big picture. You'll miss out on being perfected by trials because instead of being perfected by them, you'll just focus on being offended by them. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, number nine, you'll miss out on doing the most God-like thing you can ever It's not always good to be God-like. It's good to be godly. Uh, but there's certain things that God reserves for himself and himself only. Uh, Satan fell from grace because he wanted to be God, right? But here is an aspect of God that we are encouraged to imitate. And that is extending forgiveness to someone else. It's the most God-like thing you can ever do. Listen to the words of the scriptures that are in parentheses, but I will read for you. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see the pattern there? I will not remember your sins. I will remember their sin no more. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. How can an omniscient God ever forgive you if forgiveness is forgetting? God doesn't forget anything. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Plus, if you think about it, forgiveness is always associated with passivity, right? It just happens. You don't endeavor to forget because the minute you try to forget something, you remember it. And you're like, uh, like you, you can't forget on purpose. You forget someone's birthday by accident. You forget where you put your keys. Where did I take off my shoes? Forgiveness is, uh, forgetfulness is not something that's like a good thing. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Watch. It is choosing to not remember. It's choosing to not remember. That's not potato, potato, same thing. You're making an active, volitional choice. Do you know what that person did to you? Of course you do. You're not an idiot. Of course you do. But you can choose to say, I'm not going to treat them as if they did that. I'm not going to treat them as they deserve. I'm going to treat them better than they deserve. That's what God has done for sinners like you and like me. He's forgotten nothing. But he has chosen to not remember everything. 
That's what forgiveness is. An opportunity for you to do the most God-like thing you could ever do in this life by imitating him in choosing to not remember the sins that have been sinned against you or to not hold them against somebody. What about you? Can you recall a time when you have been forgiven much? A time when you wronged someone in some way and instead of them giving you what your sin deserved, they've chosen to forgive you instead. They have not forgotten, but they've chosen to not remember it against you. They've chosen to not treat you as your sin deserved. Have you ever been the recipient of that? If you're a Christian, you have. God has chosen to not treat you as your sins deserve. God has chosen to lay upon his son all of our iniquity. God has chosen to lay upon his son the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve for my sins. And it's paid in full and looks at me and chooses to not remember my sinfulness, but to treat me better than I would ever, ever, ever deserve. Luke 17, verse 5, the apostle's response to this is like, I can't even, right? The apostle said, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. They forgive somebody seven times a day? That's a lot. Of, that's a lot. It, you increase our faith because we can't do this. I think Jesus' analogy here is often misunderstood and hijacked by different people and different groups and, quite frankly, different heretics. Let me try to explain. When Jesus said what he did about having faith like a grain of mustard seed, he is referencing the smallest seed which hearers would have been familiar with. Granted, sometimes people hear this and say, I can do anything if I just have enough faith. If I, and, and, and more than that, if I want something, even if I need something, it's not hard for God. So Jesus says, if I have faith the size of a tiny, tiny seed... I could move a tree into the sea. Therefore, if I'm not getting what I want or need, that must mean I don't have enough faith. But that's not the primary application of this, of this example, this word picture. A Jesus' original audience would have certainly understood that a mustard seed is a teeny tiny seed. Do you know what they also would have understood? That a mustard plant can grow to 15 feet in height. 15 feet. That's a lot of... Mustard. That's a lot of plant. That's a huge plant. And so I think the picture Jesus is painting here isn't that if you have a little faith, you can tell a tree to move, right? That's not helpful. That's not, how often do you landscape, right? I mean, that, that, that's not the point that he is making, the primary application. I think what he's calling for, watch, is a faith that starts out tiny, but oh, can it grow to something grand. Oh, can it grow to something big. Oh, can it grow to a point where people like you and like me, as we grow in our faith, we're able to do amazing things. And in the context of the passage, what is an amazing thing? To be able to forgive someone over and over again is a phenomenally amazing thing that we would not be able to do but for the grace of God. And God will give us supernatural power, supernatural power to do things we could not do in our own 
strength. And the context says, for example, forgiving someone. Forgiving someone. Never underestimate what God can do in you and through you as you grow in your faith. And so here's what I'm curious about. What about you? Who in your life would describe you as a forgiving person? Would those closest to you describe you as one who forgives? Especially if you've been walking with the Lord for quite some time, especially older Christians. Because your faith should be the the 15-foot mustard plant, bush, shrub, I don't know, tree. Your faith should have grown over time where that forgiveness, I'm not saying it's natural, but you've practiced it often. And so you of all people as an older Christian should be more forgiving than people who have been walking with the Lord for a shorter period of time and whose seed might still be small. The longer you've been walking with the Lord, the more you should be acquainted with his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, and the more you should be like the forgiving God you've been walking with for so very long. The title of the sermon is Forgiven People, Forgive People. Which brings us to our final point, number four. It's normative for those who know and love Jesus to forgive others. Uh, That's the point Jesus is making in Luke 17 when he ends this particular section by saying, uh, will any one of you, verse 9, uh, verse 7 rather, Luke 17, verse 7, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, move on to the next thing, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The implied answer is no. Uh, Verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. And I think we finish this section by reminding ourselves that this forgiveness that Jesus is calling us to, this is not like the super special Green Beret Christian thing to do. This is normative. Uh, this This should be common in the lives of people who claim Christ as Lord. What God is calling us to do here is like bare minimum baseline Christianity because whether you've been walking the Lord for 100 years or for 100 seconds, you have this in common. You have experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. And so forgiving one another, this is... This is normative. Verse 10, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 32, uh, we're called to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another. But the verse doesn't stop there. No, Paul adds on, as God in Christ forgave you. He takes us back to the cross. He takes us back to Calvary. He reminds us that we need to be so focused on the truth of the gospel that the overflow of our hearts would be that we can't help but forgive others because we have been forgiven so much. Uh, we, 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 of course I have to forgive somebody. Do you know what God has forgiven me of? Of course I need to forgive my brother. Of course I need to forgive my sister. Not because she deserves it, not because he deserves it, not because last time he forgave me so I kind of owe him. Put away the scorecards. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do solely with the fact that God in Christ has forgiven you. And you have received not only forgiveness, but merit that you did not, you did nothing to earn. 
Your, your debt has been paid. You owe nothing, but it's not because of something you've done. It's because of what he has done, and you stand forgiven in the eyes of God. But we're going to close with a new song, and I'm just going to read you some of the lyrics as we prepare to sing uh, this new song that fits really well with the things that we're talking about today. All sufficient merit, shining like the sun, a fortune I inherit by no work I have done. My righteousness I forfeit at my Savior's cross, where all sufficient merit did what I could not. It is done. It is finished. No more debt I owe. Paid in full, all sufficient merit, not my own. Lord, we come to you grateful for your grace and your mercy, aware of the fact that our standing with you has nothing to do with us and everything to do with what you have done for us in forgiving us. Lord, would you remind us of the truth of the gospel that we might reflect on it in our own lives and worship you all the more, but Lord, would you help us to then be a conduit of grace, a conduit of forgiveness to other people because we have been forgiven much and so we then forgive others. Help us to be pleasing to you in our relationships with others that we might seek to be reconciled even as you have reconciled us with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.